If you have a Bible, you can open to the Song of Songs. We'll look at chapter 5, verses 2 through 16 this morning. It's a bit too long to print in the bulletin for you, so uh, if you need a Bible, there are some on the back table. And if you need help finding the Song of Songs, it's, uh, it's just it's Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs. Um, we'll look at chapter 5, most of that this morning. So let me pray, and then we'll read the scripture. Father, we thank you for your word, even this word that is um, stirring and yet uh, troubling and uh, intimidating for some of us. We pray that you would help us um, by your Holy Spirit to be receptive to what you want to say to us through this, your very word this morning, uh, written long ages ago, and uh, your people have always benefited from it. We pray that we would be among those who would see the face of Christ and hear the gospel as we consider the song this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The bride says, I slept, but my heart was awake. A sound. My beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one, for my head is wet with dew, my locks with the drop of the drops of the night. I'd put put off my garment. How could I put it on? I have bathed my feet. How could I soil them? My beloved put his hand to the latch, and my heart was thrilled within me. I arose to open to my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. My soul failed me when he spoke. I sought him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. The watchmen found me as they went about in the city. They beat me, they bruised me, they took away my veil, those watchmen of the walls. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him I am sick with love. What is your beloved more than another beloved, O most beautiful among women? What is your beloved more than another beloved that you thus adjure us? My beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among ten thousand. His head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy, black as a raven. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. His cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. His lips are lilies dripping liquid myrrh. His arms are rods of gold set with jewels. His body is polished ivory bedecked with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns set on bases of gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet, and he is altogether desirable. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So how many of you have not read C.S. Lewis' uh, Chronicles of Narnia? How many of you not read that or heard your parents read it to you? Wow, really? You've all, you've all read it? Okay, well, I was going to assign you homework if you hadn't. <laughs> it's the new year, time for resolutions, and uh, um, it's, it's a great set of stories to read. It is fun to read it to the kids, and uh, it's great fun to see them learn to read it for themselves, too. But... Um, so we're all familiar with the stories then. There's Aslan, the great lion, who is the Christ figure. Uh, he's the son of the great emperor. And um, 
and he interacts with these children uh, throughout all of the stories. It's usually children who are kind of the heroes, the ones uh, going on adventures in the lands, and most of the adventure, adventures take place actually in Aslan's absence. Right? Aslan is usually not there for most of each book. So most of the adventures take place in his absence. There's a lot of talk about him. There's a lot of living with reference to him, the things that he's said, the instructions that he's given, uh, the way that the children suppose he would want them to approach their adventures. There's a lot of talk about him, but he really only shows up every once in a while. Um, and the children and the talking beasts of the land of Narnia and the, the dwarves and, and all the folk... Um, they often wish he was present more. They really do wish that he was present more. His conspicuous absence is felt most strongly when they're lost, uh, when they're uncertain about uh, the next steps they're supposed to take, or when they face enemies when they're about to enter into battle and uh, they need courage the most. That's when they wish he was there and his absence is felt the most. Sometimes he's gone for such long stretches uh, hundreds of years in between his, uh, his visits, that citizens of Narnia, um, they begin to doubt his goodness. Sometimes they even begin to doubt his existence. Right? Uh, there are always a few loyal friends of Aslan. It's those who have they've known his presence, they've seen his power, they testify to Aslan's uh, wisdom and his faithfulness, and they seek to defend uh, in a sense, his honor before uh, the doubters, and uh, they, they seek to encourage others in their faltering faith about Aslan with words like, he knows what he's doing. There must be a good reason for his absence. He knows what he's doing. There must be a good reason for the absence that we feel very strongly right now. Um, nevertheless, even, even these loyal friends, even the faithful, are sometimes just bewildered. Right, um, they're they're really wrestling. Where is he? Why doesn't he come back? Doesn't he know? He could fix all of this if he were here right now. Um, and just so in the scriptures, uh, we see that there were long, long periods of time in Israel's history where there seemed to be little trace of God, of His presence and his work among his people. Many, uh, there's many stories of, of people going decades, individuals going decades before they had any kind of guidance, any, any sort of uh, experience of God without hearing from God at all over the decades. Many prayers and psalms uh, cry out to God, how long, O oh Lord? When are you going to fix this? When is enough enough? Um, looking for his presence, not finding it, Praying for it, not finding it. Um, things got rough for Israel. Israel was carried away into captivity again and again. And on one of these occasions, the, the book of Esther is a record of uh, God's people being preserved even while they're in captivity. But God doesn't even get mentioned in the whole book. His presence and his work is implicit at best, right? Um, he, he doesn't even get mentioned. He's, it's like he's... He's there, he's at work, but we, we can't really tell. We, can't, we don't feel his, his presence. We feel his absence. He, he seems conspicuously absent. The, the last words of the Old Testament were written down by Malachi the prophet. 
And then there were 400 long years of silence before Christ came. 400 years. God seemed conspicuously absent. And the people were desperate for his presence. I'm guessing that that feeling of his absence probably resonates with many of you. Um, Maybe you've gone through spells of of spiritual dryness, right? Uh, Times when you've felt that your prayers just bounced off the ceiling. Times when you've lamented a really deep sense of loneliness. I mean, even if you've got good friends, even if you've got a a good spouse, feeling uh, lonely for God. Um, Even times where you've felt bewildered or, or maybe even abandoned by God. Where is he? Why doesn't he come back? Doesn't he know? He could fix all of this if he were here right now. The, the Song of Songs is it's the greatest love poem celebrating divine intimacy. Not absence. Intimacy. And even this song knows times of uh, perplexing, haunting loneliness. It's like a bad dream in our passage. And in fact, many commentators try to explain this section by saying that the bride here is dreaming. She's having a bad dream. Uh, They might forget that this is poetry. It's meant to be evocative. It's evoking certain feelings, not so much, uh, it's it's not so much explanatory of actual encounters, right? Like one one time in the middle of the night, there was a bride who had, um, had a bad dream or woke up and mysteriously her, her husband was gone and she wandered around the streets. It's not, it's not necessarily an actual encounter that it's describing. It's poetic, right? It's, it's evocative. It's conveying a deep sense of, uh, of confused searching for God, of desperate searching for God, bordering on even anxiety or uh, despair. Um, and it's automatic for us to ask, and we can ask, why? Why this absence? Why is the bridegroom absent? Why is his absence so strongly felt here? Uh, why, when it seems throughout the song, he's, he's often so persistent and urgent and importunate, um, or at least willing, at the very least willing, to enter into intimacy with his bride? Uh, why is he absent now? If the whole point of the universe is cosmic communion with the triune God, why are there such dry spells? Why such conspicuous absence so frequently? Is he playing hard to get? Is he toying with our emotions? These are the kinds of questions that that we're prone to ask, maybe not out loud, but at least we, we feel these things. We... We can ask these questions of the text for the bride's sake. We can ask these questions of the whole Bible for our sake. And we might get a few suggestions about why, why the absence, uh, but not necessarily all the answers we're looking for. Um, For instance, in this text, it could be that she finds herself disturbingly alone and desperately searching because of the bride's initial lack of enthusiasm. That's what you see at the beginning of the passage, uh, her initial lack of enthusiasm. 
It says in verse 2, A sound, my beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is wet with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. Um, usually reminds commentators uh, and all of us uh, familiar with the scriptures of Jesus' words to the church in Laodicea in Revelation 3, where he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. So all of this follows immediately on the heels of, I mean, what we talked about last week, their most personal, intimate encounter. Yet the bride seems here very fickle and lackadaisical. Um, She says in verse 3, even though he's knocking at the door and and shouting, let me in, um, she says, I put off my garment. How could I put it on? I bathed my feet. How could I soil them? She didn't want to be disturbed to get out of bed. Right? She'd already gone through her nighttime rituals, and it was going to be too much effort to go unlock the door for her beloved. Um, my Lord wants to enter into my life right here, at this place, right now. It's not a very good time. It's a bit inconvenient. It's a bit uncomfortable. Highly irregular that he would have a claim on me right now at this spot in my life. But then the bridegroom stimulates her. He arouses her. He catches her attention enough so that she moves toward him. But then he's gone. Then he's mysteriously gone, right? Um, could it be that she d- didn't respond to his advances quickly enough? Um, truly, you'd better respond to Jesus' advances in time. Right? While there is time, you'd better respond to his advances. He stands at the door and knocks. And in fact, he stands right here in this congregation every week at least And there will be a time when it's too late to respond to get up to open the door and to welcome him in to eat together. And maybe the loneliness, the way that you experience his absence is a very deep, uh, kind of an ultimate existential loneliness. Uh, There's a quote here from Christos Yanaras at the beginning of the bulletin. It says, Love is something we seek as a lost paradise. Deprived of its presence, we fumble for it in the impression it is left behind. The mark etched by love is the bitterness of loneliness within our soul, a loveless solitude. That's, that's describing the deep loneliness of someone who really doesn't know God, um, who doesn't know intimacy with him. And maybe it needs to be that Jesus is standing at the door and knocking right now and you need to respond for the first time and know what it means not to be lonely anymore. And you better do that while there's still time. Uh, Could it be that you sense God's absence because it's always been inconvenient for you? It's always been inopportune. It's a bit inconvenient to rise and meet him. You can't be bothered to let him in right here, right now. But missing the boat isn't the only reason that we feel his absence, right? Just that it was too late. Opportunities passed. 
After all, the bride was actually aroused from her stupor long enough. Right? Um, she, she, was, she was enough awakened by his calling to go look for him and really go about the city, really searching. And she would find him again, but not yet. Not quite yet. Right? So he got her interested, but then he remained elusive. Could that be good for us when Christ does that? Is he teasing out a greater longing for himself? Um, is, he, is he teasing out a truer joy, a deeper joy when we find him? Does he delay? Does he sometimes make his absence poignantly felt because he's actually a great lover? First, his bride would, um, would suffer his absence. She would suffer it. And suffer what may be either discipline. Some commentators say that these watchmen are uh, figures for the, the prophets who kind of beat Israel into submission <laughs> with their words and uh, uh, try to turn their lives around through uh, maybe stern discipline, in a sense. Or uh, other commentators might might see it as uh, persecution. Right? Um, so she's suffering, and she's suffering some form of humiliation or some mocking from skeptics when these others uh, speak. Right? The, the per- perplexing sense of his absence is made worse. It's exacerbated when she receives no sympathy. Right? When others don't understand. When their doubt in her Lord's goodness threatens to become contagious to her. She's threatened with doubt. And we're sorely tested when we're in dry spells, when God seems distant to us. And we're called to defend our faith when we're perplexed and persecuted, yet we're called to praise him. The others say, what is your beloved more than another beloved, O most beautiful among women? What, What is your beloved more than another beloved that you thus adjure us? that you would incorporate us into your search for him. What's so special about him? You think, you think you're better than us, oh, most beautiful among, you, uh, among women? You think you're better than us? You think your God is better than our gods? Why do you call us to search for one who seems to be playing hard to get? You can't even find him. You're calling us to search for that one. If he were so good, why isn't he around more often? Why hasn't he made himself known more convincingly? We don't know him. Why doesn't he make himself known? C.S. Lewis, the other quote at the beginning of the bulletin there, it's, a, it's from a poem called Prayer. He, he feels this when he says, uh, Master, they say that when I seem to be in speech with you, since you make no replies, it's all a dream, one talker aping two. They don't even believe our beloved exists. And we're struggling to see the evidence of it ourselves. They don't see his glorious merits. If his glorious merits are this, why don't we feel that more often? Why the conspicuous absence? 
It's times like that when God seems absent and, and accusations are ringing, doubts, scoffers, skeptics, that we are tempted to doubt his character or his intentions or maybe even his reality. Um, it's hard to just sit with the confusion. That's really hard. To not know why he seems absent. Not know why he delays in returning. Yet, to defend him, to remain steadfast and loyal and faithful and praise him before others, even to do evangelism, right? Proclaiming the gospel of the invisible God. The conspicuously absent God. That's <laughs> uh, hard. But the bride does it. She does it because she's known him intimately. Right. My beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among 10,000. His head, his hair, his eyes, his cheeks, his lips, his arms, his body, his legs, his appearance, his mouth. And maybe that, that's uh, saying his language or his words. Um, is most sweet and he is altogether desirable. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. So it's just who he is, her, her connection to him. She knows him intimately. She knows who he is, and it's who he is that compels her to praise him, evokes her love for him, and her love then endures uh, even persecution, doubters, and, and their doubts. Do you know who the Lord is? Have you, have you known him intimately? Have you known him relationally, personally? And I'm talking about more than physical appearance, right? None of the New Testament writers thought it was necessary to give us a physical description of Jesus so that we would be captivated by his physical appearance. And the song's language, it's, it's, um, it's symbolic, right? Just like last week we talked about the, the language about the bride being symbolic. This language also is symbolic um, about his, uh, his character and the meaning of who he is. Right? Um, so I'm talking about the personal, do you know the personal, divine, spiritual beauty, the glory of Jesus Christ? Do you know him intimately, personally? Even doubters were forced to acknowledge his glory uh, from time to time. Uh, Napoleon said, I know men, I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. And Albert Einstein said, I'm a Jew, but I'm enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. No one can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. You can't read the Gospels. A Jew says, not a believer, can't read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. Do you know that Jesus? Do you know the Jesus of the Gospels, of the New Testament, of the whole Bible, really? Do you know this king and his kingdom and what his kingdom is like? That's, that's some of the symbolism, the imagery of this part of the song when the bride is extolling him. His, uh, his arms are gold and his body is, and his legs. Uh, she's, she's painting a picture of a statue of a king. Uh, we've seen that kind of statue in other places in the scripture, like Daniel, when he has visions, 
right? Um, uh, her bridegroom, the one she's celebrating, is a great king made of uh, beautiful, strong, precious uh, metals and materials, right? Do you know that king? Do you know the, the power of his kingdom? Do you know his kind of authority? The kind of authority that expresses itself in, in service and self-sacrifice and love and not tyranny? Do you know the sweetness of his love? Sweetness, altogether sweet and desirable. His words. Do you know his power to heal and to save? Do you, do you know the comfort of knowing that this one is friend of sinners, friend of sinners. Do you know his name? His name is Emmanuel. Right? That is God with us, not, not God conspicuously absent from us. He is God with us. That's who he is. That's who Jesus is. That's his very name. In his first coming <clears throat> to the world, especially upon being found in his resurrection, the glorious king mistaken for a simple gardener, like, like we read in, uh, uh, Brian read in our gospel reading this morning, we've seen our own tendency to mistake the Lord's presence, right? to actually mistake his presence among us, to misinterpret it, to not be aware of it, we wouldn't know him if we slapped him, spit on him, pulled out his beard, mocked him, crucified him, and buried him. And then he rose on the third day and was standing right in front of us. We wouldn't know him. We'd think he was absent. So we can mistake him for absent or distant or uncaring, but he is not he is with us, and he is for us. That's what the gospel insists. And our feelings can't be the best guide for us on that. We can't feel his absence and then look for our feelings to interpret reality for us. Right? The gospel tells us the reality. He is God with us. Now, there's a real sense in which Jesus is physically absent and actually inaccessible to us physically, right? We can't be in the same room with him like we are with each other, other human beings, um, because he's not here, he's in heaven. But in another sense, he is still God with us by his spirit and through his word and in the sacrament. He is God with us. It's his very name, and it's his nature to be with us. And he's promised to be with us, even when he departed from this world to, to ascend bodily into heaven, to say, I'm going to be with you always, even to the end of the age. There will not be a time when you are without me anymore, and I'm without you anymore. I'm going to be God with you to the end of the age. I will never leave you or forsake you. There may be reasons why we, why we feel loneliness. But the gospel of Jesus Christ says that we're not alone, no matter our feeling. And one day, as we recite every week at the table, uh, oftentimes during the Apostles' Creed, and uh, as we anticipate at Advent, Advent meaning coming, 
as we look ahead to the second advent, his second coming, he will come again. Aslan is on the move. He knows what he's doing. And if it seems like he's delaying, he's got good reasons. After all, he's not tame. He's not domesticated. He doesn't live up to your expectations. As the heavens are higher than the earth, his ways are higher than our ways, and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. If it seems like he's delaying, he's got good reasons. He's good. And all of God's promises are yes and amen in him, bought with the price of his own blood, guaranteed in his own resurrection, and sealed to us in the gift of the Holy Spirit who dwells with us. So let that good news, it's the gospel of God with us, it's the sure promise of his return, let that be your light in the darkness, let it be your anchor, let it be your cause for praising him even when you feel his absence. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we know from your word that you are good, that you've sent your son for us because you love us, that um, he is who he says he is, and he is God with us, and you have not left us, you have not forsaken us, and you've even assured us that it was better for us that Jesus would uh, depart from this world and go back into heaven to prepare a place for us there so that we could be with you forever in, in eternity, and we pray that you would assure us with the gospel of your, your grace, your love, what kind of God you are, the kinds of things you've done throughout history, and, uh, and your presence with us by your spirit now. We pray that you would assure us of your love, that you are with us, that you will never leave us or forsake us, that you would um, not let us sit long with a sense, a deep, lonely sense of your absence, that you would not let us be in despair or anxious but that any absence um, that we do taste in this world, any of your absence that seems conspicuous to us, that uh, you would let it be for our good, that you would stoke our desires for you by, by that sense, that you would um, cause us to search with longing after you, that you would cause us to be restless until our hearts find their rest in you, that absence would make our hearts grow fonder, and not despair or anxious. And so we pray that uh, you would, because you are a good lover, that you would do this, that you would um, take whatever time you need to return, but we do pray that it would be soon, that you would come again quickly to fully establish your, your kingdom and your presence, make your presence known to all the nations. We pray for the fulfillment of, uh, of the entire cosmos, for, for our uh, soul's delight. We pray that you would come again soon. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.